Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one of our video podcast things. Um, welcome to Pottywood, this time in the video form. Oh, I know it's horrible. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me, as always, is... It's always horrible when you start talking, Steve. But uh, Andrew Roger Carson here. Welcome to a video Pottywood. They do exist. We do actually get them out occasionally that's what she uh, said (laughs) too many times unfortunately but uh we are joined this week of course we couldn't have a video episode without bringing one of our most regular guests one of our most welcome guests and well it's bill daly bill daly how are you doing (laughs) should i should i block out my camera now (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it was bob daly (laughs) <laughs> oh god you would get a real you'd get some real stories from bob if he would tell them have you uh recovered from your trip to manchester i have and weatherspoons i have i i, <laughs> I even well andrew can tell you because i don't know if this is anything we talked about when i was there but whenever it would rain all i had to do was open up the door and it would stop okay <laughs> sure. and and then it was working even when i got to pennsylvania We've had rain here, um, not today, but um, for a few days, and it worked every time up until the last time <laughs> that I opened the door, and then I got rained on. But it was working. The spell was actually working pretty well. So it's the look of the uh, Irish. That's what it is. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome back, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we've got a packed show this time around uh, there's not going to be any of the usual preamble that you get with us reviewing movies or anything else uh so let us crack on now what is today's very special theme andy uh basically today i wanted to kind of look back 30 years at the movies that warner brothers released in 1992 and it's scary to think 1992 was 30 years ago as i remember these movies coming out when i was a teenager i was so big into the film at that point. And it's really scary looking back as I remember the previews for these movies and movies that I was going to see. And I actually did go and see most of these movies in the cinema and got kicked out of one of them, which I will tell you about later on. So naturally, we wanted to talk to Bill, who was heavily involved with Warner Brothers at the time, heavily involved in a number of these movies. And obviously, as we always say, um, IMDB is not the greatest source of information on the planet. Steve? Rumour control, these are the facts. <laughs> yes, so stop going to IMDB to find out your facts about a film before reviewing it on what's in the box, please, because <laughs> you're always wrong. Hey, I leave all that to you, you know. <laughs> so, we Listen, thought what I, sometimes way- I go there too, okay? Sometimes I will go there to get information as well, even on pictures that I worked on, and then I'll mostly look at it and go i don't remember that <laughs> what a bunch of bullshit is basically probably what yeah. you're saying so naturally we want to wade through some of uh, the the kind of trivia that is put out there about these movies and what better way than bill daly the man who was there around that time he'd seen all of these movies all the way through post-production to release and uh, no doubt probably had his hand in a few of them of saving them and getting out of trouble once in a while <laughs> You never know, but we'll find out from these stories. So I'll be ready to review a selection, not all of them, because that would take way too long. 
but we have pulled some of the movies that were the most kind of popular or stand out from 1992. Are we ready for this deep dive? I, I need to make a disclaimer here. I was not in post-production when these films came out. I was in the budgeting department assigned to post-production. So you were handling the money. More, it's a little, it, I was, but it's a little more complicated than that because um, the studio was not using post-production supervisors at the time. So my assistant, Elizabeth Smith, and I were the de facto post-production supervisors on many of these projects. So um, that's why I know a little bit more than if you would ask somebody else who was in the budgeting department. There you go. That's the best way to start. And what better way to start with than final analysis, the Richard Gere, Kim Basinger, I guess you could call it an erotic thriller. Uma um, Norman anal as well. Yeah. yeah. We were calling it Fatal Paralysis at the time <laughs> because it seemed like this movie could never get finished. <laughs> Everybody involved in it was really really nice it was a very pleasurable experience doing this movie um but it just seemed to linger and linger and linger and i'm and um and i think the studio must have had some difficulty scheduling it for its release whatever the original release was um when they were planning it um they didn't make that date i can tell you they did not make that date because this thing lingered in post-production for quite some time and then it had to go do additional photography they they uh, put a crew together went up to san francisco and and did the lighthouse stuff and everything at the very end so um yeah fatal paralysis is what we call this movie um i tried watching it about six weeks ago it was on one of the satellite stations I put it on and I, all I could do is shake my head um, because it just, a lot of it just didn't make sense to me. I just thought it was an incredibly stupid story. You know, I thought it was well done. You know, photography and everything is good. The sound mix is good. Everybody was perfectly delightful to work with. Um, but <laughs> this movie just didn't do it. What's the score? What's the Rotten Tomato score on it? Oh, Steve, what's the Rotten Tomato score? Okay, I will look that up. Uh, just out of curiosity, I was on IMDb just now, just trying to... Oh, for God's sake. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was trying to refresh my memory to see if I have actually seen this. I haven't seen this, um, but I'm looking at it now. IMDb, has it registered 5.9 <laughs> out of 10? IMDb, we don't care about that. We're talking about Rotten Tomatoes here, Steve. Um, okay, Rotten Tomatoes... Rotten. You guys talk amongst yourselves while I just look. Okay. This up. Carry well, on. Okay. Well, while he's doing that, I'm going into uh, Voodoo. Voodoo is um, it's uh, um, I, I like a it's a program. It's on the internet, but um, they manage your um, online, you know, your cloud library for you, and um, yeah. they are um, tied to. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, whoever, who was that? Who was, um, who was the company that was doing that? They were owned by Time Warner. <laughs> so I should know. Flixster. Flixster was. Flixster, uh, yeah. They were the people that were doing that. Yeah. So did you find it, Steve? I have. I've got it up here. Uh, you are looking at a 56% critic score and a 36% audience score. 
Wow. Okay. So not popular with the audiences, but critics seem to be kind of fair with it, I guess. Mostly indifferent. Um, let's just see here. There's 27 reviews. Let's see if I can bring up a few. No, I don't want to. I don't want to continue with any kind of thing. Uh, a good reviewer saying Fatal Analysis is gold-plated pulp from Newsweek. Yeah. Uh, a splat from The Spectator says concluded with a level of humdrum normality which made everything that preceded it seem stupider than ever. <laughs> Uh, someone on Joe Blow's movie network giving it a full star has said since when did Bessinger learn to act wow quite a performance indeed and then finally one obviously they didn't see her in Batman then the original (laughs) Tim Burton Batman because Kim Basinger was actually quite good in that film Yeah, Yeah. she showed a level of um, vulnerability that I'd never seen before and um, and I don't know if that's a product of getting coached by some of the other actors in it or or if it was Tim Burton. But um, I have to tell you, I was impressed when I saw her performance in Batman. One thing I always found kind of interesting about um, her performance in Final Analysis, I believe she was nominated for the Razzie for uh, Worst Actress, but lost to Kim Basinger in Cool World. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Which might be the only time that has ever happened. Um, oh, boy. If she had a tie, she would have taken home two awards. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, obviously, I mean, this was part of a cycle of Hitchcockian-style thrillers that were kind of popular around this time. So you had uh, movies like Malice. You had movies uh, like Basic Instinct, I guess, can fall into that as well. You had other movies like Guilty of Sin. Jagged Edge. Yeah, well, that was more in the 80s. Um, Color of Night. Color of Night. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Body of Evidence. Body of Evidence, yeah. But um, I read something, and you can tell me if I'm right on this. Obviously, this was directed by uh, Phil Jeannot. Phil Juano. Phil Juano. Yeah. There's a rumor out there that John Borman was originally attached to direct. I've never heard that. Oh, it's possible. Anything is possible. I don't know who the studio reached out to. Um, I didn't get involved with this movie until it was about to be greenlit. So um, who knows what happened 18 months sooner or two yeah. years sooner. John Borman um, would have brought something very different to it, I think. But Phil Juana was was really hot as a director at the time, too. And he was a pleasure to work with. But um, I don't, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever actually worked with um, John Borman. That would have been nice. It would have been nice to do that. I'm trying to think of any movies John Borman did with Warner Bros. I think Excalibur was the only Excalibur, one. Excalibur, that, that was before my time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, final analysis. Obviously, that was one of the first movies from Warner Brothers in the year. Uh, kind of moving into the early summer Oh, no, go on, Bill. You've Before you move say. off of this film, okay? <laughs> I want to say um, Richard Gere was one of the nicest people on earth to, to work with. Absolutely. He was one of the uh, producers, but it's not like he was asserting himself as a producer. I think that was a way to bump his salary. Everybody was yeah. concerned with salaries before 
um, Jim Carrey got that twenty million dollar payout um, for the um, the cable the cable, cable guy, guy or cable guy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of concern over um, sort of capping salaries so that the studios didn't go crazy with the competition. Eventually it happened with, with Jim Carrey and, and there were some just absolutely amazingly stupid payouts for some of the actors, but, um, but Richard Gere was um, just the nicest, nicest guy and smart. I mean, and that's one of the things that um I think you guys have heard me say this before. When I've been in meetings um, discussing director's cuts and the cards we would get back on previews, a lot of times the lead actors were the ones who had the really, really good ideas. You know, they were the ones who knew these characters probably better than even the director did a lot of times. And um, and Richard was no different from from many of the others that I've worked with who came up with great ideas like Robert Downey and Harrison Ford. I mean, some really people who are really prominent in the business and deserve to be there because they, you know, a lot of times they are pretty much the smartest guy in the room. Um, but the story I want to tell you about this before you move on is that this was the first premiere that Warner Brothers did that I got invited to. Okay, normally at my level, I was I wouldn't be invited to the premiere, but I got invited to this one. And it was a rainy day. Okay, we've already talked about rainy days. A rainy day, we drove to Westwood. I took the uh, production accountant with me. Um, and she worked for an outside firm because of the, the nature um, in which this film was produced um, tax-wise and everything. I, I took her with me because she had never been to a premiere. And um, so, so we got there in the rain. I'm, I'm wearing um, probably not even as well-dressed as I am right now. And I'm just totally casual stuff today, but I'm wearing just, just regular shabby employee clothes, but under a, a really nice Brooks Brothers trench coat. Okay, and, we, <laughs> and we're walking, we make the turn into the Bruin Theater in Westwood, just under the cover. And all of the press, all the photographers are huddled out of the rain underneath the marquee, watching people coming up the very short red carpet now because of the rain. Okay. And you could see people were looking at me. And I just have this every guy next door sort of look. I look like everybody else. You know, if I remind you of anybody, it's because. I look like everybody else sort of thing, you know? So I can see, I can see one of the photographers raising his camera, looking at me. Are you anybody? You know, and he's like, and then he goes, oh, what the hell? And he takes my picture, the flash goes off. Immediately when that first flash went off, they all went off. I mean, everything went off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm sure some somewhere in the archives, of um, the newspapers and magazines and everything on the uh, the fatal paralysis, final analysis <laughs> premiere, there are pictures of me walking the red carpet. Nice. Re release the Bill Daly images. That's what we want to know. <laughs> yeah. Didn't they make a riff on this in the last Naked Gun film? And it was, they, they were doing the different awards and every kind of award was a variation of its fatal attraction, its uh, basic instinct. It, yeah. it was basic attraction. It was fatal instinct. Yes. It was instinct <laughs> so, after an attraction. Yeah. F final instinct, 
um, basic attraction, and all of a sudden they just mixed all the words up. That that's that's a David joke. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure it is. Because it seems like there were a lot of these movie types coming out at the same time and they all had the similar kind of names and they were all this, right, okay, we're going to have something which is mildly erotic sounding, attraction or instinct, and then there has to be some other kind of keyword that's added to the name. Yeah. Yeah, that's the marketing department, not really quite sure of what it is they're trying to sell. And they're making it, selling what everybody else is selling. We've got a steamy erotic thriller with Steven Seagal. We need an extra word in there to make it three. <laughs> <laughs> you know, are we going to talk about Steven yes. Seagal now? Yeah, we are. Okay. We are getting to that in a bit. But first, okay. uh, let, let's move into the early summer now. Uh, I like to remember this as kind of the summer of three, because a lot of third installments for movies was coming out this year. The noticeable ones for the blockbusters was Alien 3 which everyone was waiting for and everyone was kind of disappointed by. And obviously we had Lethal Weapon 3, which was, I guess, the major fran- one of the major franchises of Warner Brothers at the time. Now you had kind of the ultra-violent Lethal Weapon and Lethal Weapon 2. And Lethal Weapon 3 got released with a lower rating, especially here in the UK. So mm. it kind of came down to, a, I guess, 12, 15 it was, a, it was originally an 18 for the first two, and then this one came out as a 15. Um, and right. it, it, if you watch it, there's definitely a, very much a tonal shift. It's a lot more comedic. It's a lot more brighter. The tone is far less um, politically charged. I mean, you do have the whole kind of cop killer thing taking center stage just as uh, the the tensions in Los Angeles were kind of starting to really kind of ratchet up along with um, the the emergence of gangster rap, just as you had with things like the, the Free in South Africa and the Cougarans and the cocaine smuggling and all the rest of it from the first three, first two, I should say. But then this one took a much brighter tone, particularly because of Joe Pesci. Yes. I thought. Well, the um, they will tell you um, if you talk to anybody at the Motion Picture Association, they, I mean, they are sort of the de facto censors in the U.S., but they will say, well, there's no censorship here because um, you can you can put your movie out. You, you'll get an NC-17, but you can put your movie out. Um, but, and, and they're very polite about it and everything. And, and on paper, they, what they're saying is true. I mean, the fact of the matter is what they're saying is true, but it's also bullshit. Because NATO, the National Association of Theater Owners, won't release an NC-17 movie. So if you go along with NC, there's my son in the background. If so, if you uh, are you getting a snack for everybody, Ian. Um, so if you go with uh, if you get an NC-17 rating, not that many people are going to see it because the the National Association of Theater Owners are not going to run it. And it's not a question of just um, this one scene is bad or that scene is bad. Um, except for the, um, I'm th- trying to think of Lethal Weapon 2, except for possibly the the sex scene with uh, Patsy Kensett and, and Mel Gibson. I don't think we see anything in there particularly, you know. But if they had taken that scene out, I don't think it would have affected the rating at all because the the rating board will also come back and say well there's an overall feel about this movie there's a there's a sense that 
there's eroticism, even if there isn't. Mm. So yeah. if you've seen the movie about um, Hitchcock, um, where he's fighting over Psycho, and yeah. you can't have a, a toilet flush, you can't have this woman in the shower. He made you think that you were seeing things in that shower, but you weren't. You weren't actually. But um, the way to board the M MPAA goes now, um, they would say the overall tone of this is that it's a sex scene, even though it isn't. And you can't really argue with them because they 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 don't take those arguments. You have to, um, and you can't really play them either. You can't play the MPAA. At least our studio never did. We had producers who would come in and try to do that. Um, and we would say, absolutely not. You don't do that. My boss, um, for most of my tenure there, Mark Solomon, was really, really good at gauging what the motion picture association wanted. And if they needed, if there was something that was the slightest question, Mark would go into that um, cutting room. It doesn't apply to any of these pictures we're talking about today, but he had the ability to go into the cutting room and say, okay, take that out, take that out, shorten this, take that out, um, that sort of thing. And they'd have to do it. And he had the authority, the, the, the head of the studio gave him the authority to do that. Um, nothing ever got, damaged because he would do that you know and all these directors agreed to deliver a movie that was um r or pg-13 or you know i don't know completely what the rating systems you have in the uk um but when a when a picture starts out there's a contractual arrangement about what the rating is going to be so i'm guessing that uh with lethal weapon three they probably all agreed that they would go after the PG-13, right? Where the other, yeah. the first two were R, I would imagine, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that had to do with the overall violent tone of it all, you know? And in the second one, the, the whole suicide thing too, that's, that's a thing that the movie studios don't really want to promote. Um, but I'm guessing that everybody got together and said, we're going to do this one PG 13 because the 13 year olds really want to see this movie, which they did. Yeah. Honest to God, they really did. You know, we could have made the matrix a PG 13, but the Wachowskis insisted that it go out the way it did. I mean, we, we could have easily with one cut made the matrix a PG 13 and the Wachowskis who were first dollar participants on every movie in that series would have made, they would have tripled their money probably because every teenager in the world wanted to see those movies. Um, so I'm guessing that um, they expanded their audience at the time. I wasn't part of those discussions, but they expanded their audience by um, toning down the violence and introducing more comedy to it. Well, speaking of audience, and this is just surprised me now, sticking with Rotten Tomatoes, the audience score was 61%, which is strangely low i was expecting that to be higher but even lower than that this is a certified rotten movie on 58 percent critic score what which... was the box office take though oh <laughs> no the box office take was the fifth <laughs> highest that year i believe uh according to this uh 142 million gross in the u.s doesn't say anything yeah. about uh, international. Well, it's the it's the highest grossing lethal weapon movie out of all of them, I believe. Because I don't and think I, and that's um and that's the introduction of Rene Russo, right? Yep. Rene Russo was in that as well. 
So it's Rene Russo and um, Joe Pesci. You can give give the credit to them. I think they expanded the audience. Is what they did. They had to change something up. You can't keep sending the same thing back to the audience all the time. And then other people become more interested in it because because of its success. You know? I thought she did a great job. She oh, fits, yeah. she fit into the cast perfectly. That was her major launch. I mean, she'd been in some movies. Uh, she was in a movie called Mr. Destiny with Jim Belushi uh, prior to it. That's, the, I think, the only thing. Major League. Her. She was in Major League. Oh, Major League. Oh, yeah. She was, that. I'd yeah. forgotten she was in that. Yeah. So, yeah, she'd kind of been around these movies since around baseball, funnily enough. And, and she was, um, but she was a model. She was a high fashion yeah. model um, before she got into, um, onto the big screen. And she did a fantastic job. And obviously you had, um, I want to say, it's Stuart Wilson, who was the bad guy in the movie, I believe. But out of the entire Lethal Weapon franchise, I felt he was the least kind of developed bad guy. Yeah. Uh, out, of, out of the lot. And I'm not really even sure of his motivations for this day. I know it had something to do with real estate. I, th I think his was just plain oh, money. And, to, and well, what was interesting about that, you know, I wasn't, I, I remembered all of this. I remember discussions about it, but I wasn't intimately involved in it. I got more involved with um, what Richard Donner and, and Joel Silver were doing when I moved into post-production out of budgeting. Um, but there was a, uh, there was a development in uh, that was east of LA on the way to Las Vegas that um, that had run out of money and we burned it down all those framed houses and all that the big oh, yeah fires. the Rancho yeah. Royo yeah we um, we burned those down for this movie and then um, and then Joel Silver was re really well connected with the music world he got the uh, he got the Eric Clapton George Harrison song the runaway train Oh, no, that was Elton John. Oh, George Harrison was in the second movie. Yes. Yes. Um, Eric Sting Clapton, Elton in. John, Runaway Train was on. Um, and, and then Sting, but they yeah. got Sting to do the the opening song, right? About the, the... Yeah, with the unmistakable um, Michael Carmen <laughs> guitar, Eric Clapton guitar riffs. Yeah. I love the music in all these movies. It's just oh, as yeah. much of a character in it as and, any and... of the actors. And Michael Kamen at the time was, he really was the go-to guy for um, oh, yeah. Donner and, um, and Joel Silver, really was the go-to guy. We didn't realize at the time how ill he was, because he died very suddenly, it seemed. But um, he was another very delightful person to work with. I, I loved going to the uh, scoring stages when Michael Kamen was working. It was um, an experience unlike any other on a movie studio, because you you sit if you go onto the floor and sit in, in the actual stage with all the instruments, you've got basically a full symphony there. You have a hundred pieces, 125 pieces, or they're all playing bits and pieces of cues. Um, but you're in the room. It's like a symphony is happening and you're in the middle of it. And it's the most amazing experience. I don't even know how, to describe it in a way that would want you to want to do it, but it's just absolutely amazing. And I used to take um, assistants to the scoring stages all the time, um, just so that they could experience that other, because nobody else was ever going to do it for them, but the music people are always pretty cool and would let you do it. You know, I took, um, parenthetically, <laughs> I took 
three or four people over to Sony, what had been the Lorimar and then MGM lots before that. Um, I took them over for The Specialist. It was a Jerry Weintraub produced movie with Sylvester Stallone and Sharon Stone and James Woods. John Barry did the score. The, the John Barry score is the only remarkable thing about that movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you. Apart from that yeah, shower I've, scene. I've seen that and, one, yeah. And, um, and that score is a combination of James Bond and Body Heat. James Bond oh, basically yeah. with the saxophone lead. Um, Got to be honest, Bill, over. when I saw it, I wasn't paying much attention to the score. <laughs> <laughs> this was the 90s. You couldn't, there was no internet at the time. So. Yeah, but yeah, but it was, um, it was quite amazing. And I grew up a huge James Bond fan, loved John Barry's work. And it was in the specialist, the score in the specialist is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary combination of body heat and James Bond. Really cool. I'm sorry to steer the conversation away from yeah. what so we were much talking. better movie. <laughs> but um, obviously, Stuart Wilson playing the bad guy, but apparently a number of people were approached to take the bad guy role. Apparently, a big apparently, uh, Robert De Niro was in high consideration for that role. Anything is possible. You know, the, these rumors get started on the internet, I think, because somebody will be in a in a meeting room and they will say, what if we get Robert De Niro to do this movie? And then somebody will say, well, we'll, we'll call him. We'll make the call and see if he's busy or not. Um, I wasn't intimately involved in the actual production of this movie. So I couldn't tell you yes or no, whether a serious offer was made to Robert De Niro or not, or whether he would even have considered it, you know, but um, he's a very busy actor who's working all the time and you don't know what he would have canceled in order to do this movie. You know, it, I, I can neither confirm or deny that, that rumor. So there's a possibility. Like it would have been awesome. Uh, it doesn't seem likely to me. No, but oh, another yeah. thing here, um, renowned uh, actress and guest script doctor Carrie Fisher was an uncredited script doctor on that Lisa Webster. Me. Now, <clears throat> as far as I understand, there was drastic <laughs> I never changes. heard that. No. About, I from what I hear, that. originally there were drastic changes to the plot of Lethal Weapon 3. And for, forgive me if I'm wrong here, I understand at one point, whether it was number three or number four, there was originally some kind of original plot to do with neo-Nazis at the time um, that got discarded. And I think that might be in line with number four, where it was replaced with, I guess, the was it the Chinese triads? Yeah. And Jet Li. And Jet Li. I, I have stories to tell you about number four, but um, <laughs> um, neo-Nazis would have been... A great place to uh, a neo-Nazi storyline would have been a great place to go, but that's that's um, sounds a little bit more like two as well with the whole you know because everybody was hitting yeah. South Africa at the time, you know. And I pointed out to somebody very quietly, to somebody who was not in charge, I pointed out you know, and we're talking about number two. This plot line is so stupid because if if you had a corrupt South African diplomat in the United States, okay? The State Department would have called somebody in Johannesburg or Cape Town, I don't know which is the capital, 
they would have called South Africa and said, and basically said, this guy is a criminal. He's doing this. He's doing that. And they would have brought the guy home immediately. Absolutely immediately. And then you don't have a story. Okay. And as bad as South Africa might have been um, in the world, in the eyes of the world at the time, there was no way they would have sanctioned this kind of stuff from one of their diplomats. I guarantee you. You can level that kind of criticism against pretty much anything, <laughs> though, couldn't you? You know, the old the babysitter would have lived if she hadn't have gone upstairs where the killer was hiding. Yeah, right? it, yeah you, you, suspension of disbelief. You got to let right, the movie right. magic no, work. No, no, I magic. know, I know. I just, I was just telling somebody else that this is this never would have happened. <laughs> well, it's a story that's kind of debated on whether it happened or not, and kind of our last thing to talk on on Lethal Weapon Three, unless Bill has some uh, fond memories of it. Now, uh, I believe Warner Brothers, uh, head of Warner Brothers at the time, Bob Daly, and Terry Semmel, because they were so happy with how well Lethal Weapon 3 did, they were planning to give Mel Gibson, Joel Silver, and Richard Donner brand new Range Rovers as thank you presents, going to be giving to them at a surprise lunch as a gift. But Richard Donner took the liberty to invite Joe Pesci, Danny Glover, Rene Russo and Jeffrey Boehm, which necessitated in Warner Brothers scrambling to buy them Range Rovers also at the 11th hour. Yep, that's true. <laughs> Tell us and about this. There was, and there was criticism leveled throughout the studio over that because um, there was simultaneously with this, there was um, some measure of cost cutting. Some sort of edict had come around this time from Time Warner in New York about um, you need to you need to tighten the belt a little bit. You guys are going a little too crazy with, uh, you know, these movies. And and I remember one person um, got laid off and complained to the press. I actually knew somebody in the press complained to the press and said they're laying me off so they can pay Mel Gibson more money. Honest to God, that was an honest to God thing. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. They were scrambling at the eleventh hour, and they they didn't even make a deal. Like they could have called um, the, whatever the company was before before it became Jaguar um, Land Rover. Yeah, they they could have contacted the big distributor in New Jersey and said, "We need we we need five or six or seven of these vehicles for for the these stars that we want to present them with a gift, but we need you to make a deal." But they didn't do that, and they didn't get a deal. They paid retail. They paid actual retail for all of those um, Range Rovers. And I don't think I saw any of those Range Rovers on the studio lot more than two months after this film was finished. You know, because Mel was on the lot. You know, Richard Donner was on the lot. Joel Silver was on the lot. And they were not driving the Range Rovers very long. You know. I wonder what they they gave Zack Snyder on 300. When 300 was such a, a huge success, it even caught us by surprise. Uh, they gave Zack Snyder and Aston Martin. Oh, now we're talking. Yeah. yeah. I remember he had, um, he had an office that was in um, a building that also ha- housed the big conference room that we'd ha- we would have our Wednesday meetings when we were would discuss with the rest of the studio facility and all the departments what the plans were. And Zach had an office in that building um, upstairs from the conference room. And he and his wife, Debbie, had 
would park outside the entrance that we would walk up to get into the conference room. And I remember they were pulling in as we were coming out of the meeting. And I said, hey, Zach, if you're not going to drive that Aston Martin, give it to me. Okay. Because he wasn't driving it. He drove something else in. And Debbie said, believe it or not, it's in the shop already. (laughs) (laughs) And Terry Semmel had an Aston Martin that was always in the shop. I don't care. I would I, I would pay any kind of mechanics fee just to have something like a, uh, a, a DB7, you know, the, the Casino Royale Aston oh, yeah. Martin. Oh, well, sex that's on what they wheels. Gave, that's what they gave Zach. To be getting a car as a gift. But anyway... Is there any other thing from Lethal Weapon 3 you wanted to mention before we move on to our next choice? Oh, I thought of something really funny to tell you. Oh, okay. This is the big, you know, I I wasn't able to confirm or deny a lot of the stuff that you brought up, but I can tell you one thing for sure. They fuck you at the drive-thru. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, if you're a critic, uh, they'll fuck you if you make a kid and play movie at Warner Brothers. Now, kid and play, if you're uh, a teenager from the 1990s, you'll know of House Party, House Party 2, House Party 3, even 4 and 5, I guess. But they only ever made one movie away from that, and that was with Warner Brothers. And it Mm -hmm. was a Prince and the Pauper tale called Class Act. Which yes. I actually did go and see this movie, and I've got fond memories of the movie. I but thought the movie was wonderful. I went to um, an early screening of it, um, not knowing it, it was completed. The movie was finished. It might have been the premiere I went to. I'm not sure, um, but I know I went to an early screening of it, and um, I had zero expectations. And this movie delivered in every way. It was the most charming kind of teen movie that I could imagine at the time without John Hughes being at the helm. So was New Line on the lot in no. No. 1992? No. Because that's who did House Party and all of those movies. So how would how were you originally first approached on on Class Act? Do you remember when you first kind of heard this project was going ahead and were you I... wondering what it was? Um, I did. I wondered what it was. I wondered who Kid and Play were. Um, I wasn't quite as up to date on the use of the internet in those days. Um, basically, my assistant was handling that. I was. Um, what I would do is um, I tried to. Um, I tried to take some of the workload off of myself, but the best way to actually train somebody on how to do the job is to have them do it. You just. You have them do it, and if there's a question or or issues or something, then you come to me to help you um, work it out. <clears throat> in this case, my assistant Elizabeth was in charge of that one, and um, she could tell you a lot more than I could. One thing that I will, because you know, I might as well do this with all of the movies, seeing as how it's been brought up for the first two. Uh, this has got quite a discrepancy between ratings uh you are looking at a 17 percent critic score with this one which would put it smack dab in our current 
crop of what's in the uh, the bargain bin. Uh, however, that is only with 12 reviews. With 5,000 plus reviews, audience score is sitting at 73%. So there is quite a difference there between the actual people who went in to review it as part of a job and people that just went, no, I like that film. And what's away well, from I, it. I, I suspect that Kid and Play probably had a lot of um, fans that went to it and enjoyed it. And then, um, you know, the critics always try to sound more sophisticated than maybe they are. You know, that yeah. um, I don't I don't know what their expectations are. I had no expectations going in. So I wasn't sure what I was going to see. I wasn't sure whether I was going to like it or not. Um, I only ever walked out of one screening in my entire tenure at warner brothers i only ever walked out of one screening that actually was a premiere <laughs> that i walked out of um i'm not going to tell you what it was um but um <laughs> i guess. this was um this was one of those things where um i just i had no expectations and came out you know delighted with what had had happened you know i mean we we put out a good movie it probably did fairly well at the box office too and apparently it was a, a cloud a crowd pleaser i'll try to hide him <laughs> i love a coke <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah i have the headset on he can't hear you yeah. grab an extra two for all our listeners yeah <laughs> <clears throat> but uh obviously it was a nice plug between lethal weapon three and what became probably one of the biggest movies of the year, the most well, the most anticipated movie of the year, obviously, for me was Batman Returns. Yes, and yes. I don't think any of us expected what Tim Burton was going to do with this movie following the first movie. the The tonal shift was gone from a traditional superhero movie to a full Tim Burton movie. Yes. Yes. Now, we recently did the walk around Warner Brothers with uh, Johnny Matug, and we'd seen a lot of the spaces where it was moved, where it was filmed. F apparently, fifty percent of the Warner Brothers lot was taken up by the sets from this movie. Is that right? Ex the exterior lot, yes, absolutely, and and portions of the lot that normally you don't see taken up by um, by productions. Um, so you no doubt remember the the metal grill that's still in place that's been there for 30 years now yes metal um because that drove the the batmobile they the batmobile was like on a track um so it was getting pulled like a like a cable car that's still in place on a lot i don't know that the cable still works but the um but they they never put blacktop back over that the the metal plates are still there um the flash building is still there that that was slated to be torn down the the flash tv show that i think initially aired in 1990 or 91 yeah 92 maybe around there um they they had built a building on the back lot that's very sort of gray and gothic looking um and that was slated to be torn down when the show was canceled and tim burton said no 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 i want that i want that up the, um, and then they built a little um, extension to it that's um, similar in style, a little more Art Deco than than Gothic, similar in style. They don't look um, out of place next to each other. 
And so that was built for Batman. And then ER used that for over a decade. Yep. And that's still there. And you can see the video of Bill talking about that on the Pottywood Facebook page. If you scroll through, you will be able to find that on it. Uh, there was so much to talk about uh, Batman Returns. It seems to be a kind of recurring thing that you always seem to kind of talk about. So I tried to keep the the notes on it very different from obviously your Sean Young story, which everyone wants to know. And you can check out on the Pottywood Facebook page. We have a video of Bill showing exactly how it happened, where it yeah. happened, and where he found Tim Burton hiding for his life. <laughs> <laughs> all, all renovated, though. I didn't realize the extent to which that building had undergone renovations because the doorway is not there anymore. It's just a wall. The, the window that was my office is totally different configuration now. It used to be a big picture window, and now it's like in three pieces. Um, the uh, the men's rooms are have been completely redone. I mean, they're much nicer now than they were, you know? <laughs> but, so <laughs> on some level, I'd be disappointed if, um, if they were still the skanky men's rooms <laughs> they were 30 years ago. I remember when we were saying, uh, when we were leaving there, Warner Brothers, hopefully one day in the future, will put a, stat a bronze statue of Tim Burton <laughs> hiding in that bathroom. Yeah, you know, if, if Ethan Dettenmeyer ever becomes the head of the studio, that would happen. <laughs> Ethan Dettenmeyer being the guy who runs uh, Combat Radio and Brigade Radio 1. He's yes. the one most enamored. He's the one person in the world most enamored with Sean Young and keeps bringing, bringing it up. Yeah. And hello, Ethan, if you are watching. We love the show. Uh, also, going into this, so I found some interesting things that I wanted to know if it's true or false. Uh, one, uh, the penguins for Danny DeVito's penguins character, the real ones, were actually flown over in their own compartment and had their own refrigerated trailers and swimming pools on the lot. That's, that is true. Okay. <laughs> tell, us, tell us more about this, Bill. So, well, um, they... The thing is that they came from, I think the penguins, um, of course, they come from Antarctica, but, um, but the particular penguins on that shoot either came from Argentina or um, Australia. I'm guessing Southern Australia. Um, they, uh, they're valuable animals. You need to take care of them and you need to keep them in um, refrigerated, if not frozen, you know, climate. Even when you see them in a zoo, do they have them in the zoos in the UK? Yeah. Do they have penguins? Mm -hmm. You know, can you get over the stench when you go in there? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, they're pretty wicked. The smell <laughs> of those things. Are, you know. But yeah, they had, um, yeah, they, but they did have, um, they did have penguins. The thing is that everybody wants to be, if you have anim any animals in, in your films, then the um, American Humane Society gets involved and everybody wants their stamp of approval because they will go on the air and the internet and everywhere else and complain about you if they if if you haven't approached them and if they think that a dog or a cat or a mouse or a cow or a penguin has been abused or mistreated well, so speaking you got to take care of them and yeah so they were treated um they were treated with as much care as Michael Jordan's basketball players in Space Jam. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't know the reference really. It's 
been so long since I've seen that film. It, it, I, I don't know. But uh, when we get that, to 96, we'll tell you all. Um, one group of people that weren't happy was McDonald's, apparently, wasn't it? When it came to the tie-in with the uh, Happy Meal toys. Because I heard a rumour that McDonald's were unprepared for just how dark Tim Burton was taking the film. And there was a whole kind of backlash with parents groups yeah. and McDonald's copying it. How much of that is is true? Do you know? I this is the first I've heard of that. I know that Warner Brothers for a long time had been trying to do a tie-in with McDonald's for especially the kids, the Warner Brothers Family Entertainment stuff. Um, so I'm not I'm not surprised that that McDonald's would have been approached. I don't remember um those happy meals at the time i don't eat at mcdonald's generally um i mean it's not like i have never gone there but i have even probably back in the 90s i have and um but even before i was a parent you know but um i i don't specifically remember that at all and i i wouldn't blame mcdonald's for the dark turn you know tim burton was pretty much given carte blanche to do what he wanted because he he did so well with that first Batman, you know, and and Tim has always been hit or miss, you know. He either strikes out or he gets a home run every time. There doesn't seem to be very much in between. Yeah. I've got a fond memory of this one because this was the very first movie that I ever went to the cinema to see by myself, and uh, yeah. I was 12 years old and I just thought, you know what, I've I've got nothing to do today. I think it was the the summer holidays or something. And just went, you know, I'm going to go to the cinema and just sat there. And to make things even better, I had the entire place to myself. Really? Private screening? Yeah. Pretty much. How was the film? How was the film? I loved it. Oh, good, good. My oh, favorite good. one until uh, uh, Christian Bale came into it. Yeah, well, that was, that's a whole other conversation too yeah. the thing the philosophy with bob and terry when they were running the studio was that um because batman came from comic books that it was basically a children's thing and they approached it as a children's thing which is why they would go to mcdonald's i guess because in their mind it was a children's thing and i remember in uh, when we did batman and robin that was the one with arnold schwarzenegger and and george clooney they were upset we did an, an audience preview with um, for research where we got cards. We did it in Las Vegas, and they were upset that um, that 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 Las Vegas was chosen. They didn't think it was an appropriate place for to get kids, you know. So, um, but it worked out well enough. I don't think we did a second preview anywhere of that movie. Perhaps we should have, seeing how it came out. Yeah. Okay, I was looking in here. Apparently, uh, the Catwoman posters are probably the most stolen posters in history from bush shelters. Yeah, you know, um, I, I hadn't heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me. And I start, um, I, <laughs> I, I'm wondering now if I have any. <laughs> apparently, you they're know? worth a lot. Because I have I have so many posters from my tenure at Warner Brothers that I I would just get I would get them and roll them up and they're in, and in my garage and you've seen where I keep yeah. them right and how many I must have thousands I must have oh, thousands yeah. of posters there 
I'm um, thinking a trip to eBay, don't I you? I really should. Well, <laughs> that's the thing is I, I really should go. It, it would be a full-time job just to catalog them. True. You know, and, and not just the Warner Brothers things, because I have some collectors um, ones as well. Up to Quantum of Solace. I'm not, I don't remember if I have Quantum of Solace, but I certainly have Casino Royale. I have every I have every original James Bond poster. Wow! All the way back to Doctor No, I have. You've seen the Tomorrow Never Dies in, one in your garage. Yes, in pristine, all of them in pristine condition, and not just um, as they got as I started to um, make more money in Hollywood as I started to move up in in my positions. Um, so like even in the Roger Moore series. So I would say, um, I can't think of the funny, the fly who bugged me, the spy who, okay. <laughs> I keep doing the funny title, the, the fly who bugged me. Um, the I have a one sheet of the spy who loved me in absolute pristine condition. And then after that film, I have like the A, B and C versions of the one sheets as well. Nice. Yeah. So I think, um, and then the, the question is, do, do I sell them as a collection? I mean, the James Bond ones, it seems to me that would be more valuable as a collection if I wanted to sell them on eBay than one by one. Because who wants Moonraker, really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, one thing about Catwoman that cannot be stolen is the memory of Michelle Pfeiffer whip training outside your office, Bill. <laughs> yes. It's, um, I don't remember. Is that in the video too? You no, you on? told me about this while we were there. Oh, but you don't have it. I showed you where you didn't film me doing that. No, no. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer um, was getting training to do the whip she learning how to do the whip and she was out. We had the, the um, building 133 also known as producers building one where my office was at the time had an inner courtyard. You'll remember the inner courtyard yep. and then an outer courtyard. And in the outer courtyard, Michelle was practicing the whip. <laughs> okay. And the, I mean, we only saw her out there one day doing it. She was wearing this black leotard, okay? It had to be spray painted on. It was, it was so tight. <laughs> I, I would bet anything that the mark from my tongue is still on the window. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank God it's your tongue. Uh. <laughs> I just, oh my God. Oh, the things that we used to see. Just, <laughs> it was, um, oh my God. If I had, if, if I had an iPhone 13, then <laughs> I would have, I would have been going steady with that video all these years. <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> just on. just in case uh, anyone's interested, because uh, I've pulled up Batman Returns. This is the highest score so far, seventy three percent audience, but with a certified fresh, it's eighty one percent. Yeah, really. Uh, wow. Critic score. Um, but we can't talk about Batman 
without just uh, just just touching on a little bit of news that's uh, that broke this afternoon uh, that uh, Kevin Conroy the voice of uh, Batman and Bruce Wayne in the animated series and the Arkham video games passed away today, sadly, age 66. So him for me was always my Batman. And uh, yeah, we're going to miss him. So thank you very much for everything that you've done, Kevin. Rest in peace. Yes, definitely. It was someone that we actively wanted to look to bring onto the show. And unfortunately, it's never realized, but the memories always still remain. Yeah. And uh, in getting back to kind of Batman Returns, which was obviously the movie around when Batman the animated series was released mm-hmm. uh, and probably took the most influence from. Uh, apparently, this was the first film made in Dolby Digital. Is that correct? Well, Dolby Digital being the sound. Yes. The first time it was. Um, that, that is possible. But unlikely. Was it Dolby SDR or something like that? Well, it would have been, uh, well, Dolby SR was already there. Um, The spectral recording was just, um, Dolby um, started as a noise reduction system. And um, so that's what it was. It was Dolby noise reduction. Then they started doing spectral recording and, and, and that was sort of an enhancement um, for cinemas um, because when you, when you really wanted to get really, really good sound in a theater, they would release it in 70 millimeter. Okay. They didn't shoot it in 65 for 70 release. They would blow it up. They would take an original 35 um, negative and blow it up to 70. But the draw was not the picture being 70 millimeter as much as you had six track magnetic sound, the uh, magnetic recording, um, had a much better response. The audio was way, way, way better, just in every way than than um, optical than the optical tracks. And they would do six tracks. You'd have either side of the film, and then you you know left and right. But then you'd have tracks on the back as well. So uh, the seventy millimeter would pass through the projector. And um, the, because you can't have both the, the, uh, the lens and the audio in the same place, the audio is always advanced so many frames up um, on the film so that um, the picture and the sound don't exist in the same spot physically on the film. Um, but with um, 70 millimeter, the, the, um, the magnetic tracks actually have to come into contact with the sound heads in order to reproduce the sound. So the film then becomes very subject to abrasion. So if you wanted to see something in 70 millimeter, um, you needed to see it the first couple of days because otherwise you're, you've got a trashed up print. So um, I recall Dolby Digital coming later. And I don't know exactly when, I just find, I just find, find it doubtful that in 1992 that Dolby Digital would have been the way we were going. I don't I don't see that. I think it was closer to 97, I would say. Okay. I don't know for sure, but that would be my guess around 1997 or so. 
Well, speaking we were of- always having a double inventory. What we did was uh, a double and triple inventory because the original was Dolby A. Dolby A was the original. And then Dolby SR, the spectral recording. And then when we went to Dolby Digital, um, we, we meaning the studio, not just my department, but we, the studio, got tired of having multiple inventory and all these prints. So we got together with Technicolor and created the quad track. So if you if you pull a, a film strip out, and I didn't I didn't imagine in a million years that we would get on this topic, but um, but I could I have in my garage, I, I could show you examples of what they look like. So the film, so you have your 35 millimeter film strip like this, and then on the outer edges is Sony SDDS. And then, um, be, then on next to the picture on one side is your um, your stereo Dolby SR um, optical tracks, and then in between the Dolby SR where they are and the um, and the picture. So I'm talking about the geography of the actual 35 millimeter S tape. Um, you would see a dotted line, and that's. Uh, a time code that runs a DTS disc because DTS is um, it runs on a CD, separate CD. And then in between the sprocket holes on one side is Dolby digital. And, um, and if you look at, if you get a magnifying glass out and look very close, so you can, you can actually identify all of those and you can see the Dolby thing because it's slightly different color. It's sort sort of an amber color in there. And the, the um, Sony SCDS are kind of blue in color left and right. So I'm sorry to get into this technical <laughs> stuff, but the um, anatomy of a film cell. <clears throat> well, there we go. It's all well, different now. It's all digital. Well, also in getting back to around the movie. So Michael Keaton apparently earned 11 million for his return as Batman. And the rumor is that Warner executives were very uneasy about that figure. I'm sure they were. It was more money than anybody else was getting at the studio, if if that number is true, which I can neither confirm nor deny. Um, so if that's true, yeah, they would be because everybody, you know, the escalating costs. Um, a lot of we were trying to hold the line on so many different things then, you know, and it and it wasn't until Mark Canton moved from Warner Brothers over to Sony. And then the Jim Carrey deal that um, the salaries of the of the lead actors just exploded like you wouldn't believe. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, he if if he got eleven million dollars, that was eleven million dollars up front against um, a percentage of the gross. That's what my guess would be. So like the Jack um, Nicholson deal. on. Well, that was um, well, let's see the the Jack Nicholson deal was an either or. It was um, okay, Jack. You're you're gonna get you're gonna get a figure, and I I don't know what it was. I wasn't even I was still doing television. I was I was with Lorimar, which was part of Warner Brothers, but um, I was with Lorimar at the time of the first Batman. So, but Jack made like eighty million dollars or something because he got he got a percentage of the gross. He took a l- lower fee and opted for a percentage of the gross. And then he was also getting a percentage of the uh, merchandising and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so after, 
this film after Batman um, returns, right? Was that Batman Returns? Yeah. With Danny DeVito. Um, that's when they started to change the merchandise away from the movies and towards the animated series. Because yeah. the, the Batman animated series was enormously successful, successful, more than anybody imagined. It just it was, yeah. It was just amazingly. So then they took all the uh, merchandising stuff and tagged it to the animated thing. And that way they they could stop having to pay Jack Nicholson. I mean, it's cruel, but that's yeah. sometimes how business works. Uh, yeah. It's a great so, series. Um, so yeah, they they would have been nervous. They would have been nervous about that, about paying anybody that kind of money, an upfront fee. But I'm guessing that, because um, eventually it, it became, you know, you get this fee for, um, for um, as an upfront against, you know, so you get a minimum eleven million dollars, but you're really getting a percentage of the gross. <clears throat> and I would bet, I would bet anything. Now I don't know. I'm I know I'm an insider on this, but I don't really know the answer to the question. But I would bet that if that was what Michael Keaton got, it was because of what Mel Gibson got to come back and do Lethal Weapon Three. Yeah, they pulled out all the stops to get him. On there and if that movie seems deficient to you in in terms of action and stuff like that it's because they made compromises with the uh below the line costs in order to pay mel yeah you know and when lethal weapon 4 came out um between between 1992 when lethal weapon 3 came out and 2000 was it or uh 1998 1999, Lethal Weapon 4? Uh, 98. Okay, 1998. In the interim, um, like Mark Hanton had left, Bruce Berman came in as head of production, then Bruce Berman left. He left simultaneously with um, Forrest Gump and Braveheart. Okay, There's a, they were not our movies. We didn't end up making those movies, but there's a story attached to that, which we'll address another time. Um, but Bruce ended up leaving, and then it became Billy Gerber and uh, Lorenzo. And by the time Lethal Weapon 4, it was just Lorenzo de Bonaventura. He was so desperate for a hit. They pulled out all the stops to get Lethal Weapon 4. They paid ransom money. Honest to God, they paid ransom money to get that, that movie made. And that movie paid off. It did pay off. But it was, um, it was, I don't think the budget was ever actually approved. Okay. Right. So we were doing cost reporting on that at a time and we had nothing to compare it to because the, the, there was no budget. Basically, do the movie, get it done. We'll do anything to get this done because there had been a string of failures leading up to that. Not, not Lorenzo's fault. A lot of stuff put into play before he came in there it's just you know things shift um but they were so desperate and and it got them back on track lethal weapon four did enormously well and when you're doing well you attract talent from other places so um you know one hand washes the other it's it's a vicious circle well the good news is uh in regards to batman returns is at the time it broke a record 
making 47.7 million in just its first three days of release. Yeah. Yep. Which yes. was only surpassed by Jurassic Park the next year. Yep. And oh, yeah. So it was the record holder for yes. that year. Yep. And obviously, everyone at the studio must have been gleaming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, we were betting, it wasn't the first Matrix, I think the second Matrix, we were betting that there, we would break the 100 million threshold for a weekend. Because up till Lethal Weapon 2, or I mean, up until the second Matrix, nobody had crashed through 100 million in a weekend yet. And neither did that one. It came just <laughs> short. And then somebody else broke it. I don't remember what picture it was. but Lord I of the Rings, I bet you. Probably the Avengers or something like that. Oh, God. Oh, no, 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 no. It was shortly after. It would have been... Um, so the second Matrix is... Uh, first Matrix was 99. Second Matrix is probably... Um, 2002. 2002. Yeah. But we had Harry Potter in the meantime. Harry Potter didn't break that in the first week. Weekend. Wow. Maybe not. I mean, but, it, you know, Joel Silver was just betting that he was going to do that. Maybe it was even the first Matrix. Maybe he was thinking the first Matrix would do it. But people didn't know exactly what it was yet. And I remember telling people they had to see it that, you know, as I've said earlier in this program, I don't know how to describe it in a way that would make you want to see it. Yeah. But you got to take my word for it. You've never seen and you've never heard anything like this because sonically, the, the Matrix really um, came through in a big way too. You've never heard a movie up until 1999 that sounded like that. We And of course, we won um, all the post-production Oscars that year. Editor, um, sound, sound mixing, and visual effects all went to The Matrix. But we're not talking about 1999. No, we're talking no, we're about no. 1992. No. So in getting in back to 1992, here's some quick trivia things, true or false from you, and any clarification on them is fine. Uh, security was so tight that even Kevin Costner was refused entry to the set. I would believe that. I hadn't heard that, but I would believe it. And obviously he was doing The Bodyguard, which we will cover a, a bit later, or in part two, I reckon. Uh, also, uh, Warner Brothers had to hire a private investigator when photographs of the Penguin made it into the tabloids. Yes. They didn't have to, but they did. Okay. I don't know where it went. They, you know, they did that stuff all the time. And it wasn't so much that they hired. A, it's not like they went out and hired Jim Rockford. They, <laughs> James Garner needed the work that year. You know, no, <laughs> they, it's not like they called some detective agency. It wasn't, you know. Um, a dame Pinkertons. walked into my door. Yeah, I know. It wasn't the Pinkertons and it wasn't Philip Marlowe and it wasn't Jim Rockford. They they got um, an investigator from probably the LAPD or the Burbank Police Department, would be my guess. And at some point, um, I believe it was after 9-11, they hired a, uh, the head of security was a um, Secret Service agent. They hired a guy from the Secret Service to become, he was a really good guy, um, Jim O'Donnell. Um, really, really good, good guy, but... Um, they have a different way of looking at the world. Everything is a threat. You know, everything is a security breach. Um, I do remember this stuff 
with the uh, the costumes and all that. And um, I don't know what the eventual outcome was. Um, and I don't know that. Um, oh God, I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be careful. It's just I don't know what to say. Okay. <laughs> the, the, uh, they, that should be written on your gravestone one day. <laughs> they go off on these tangents, you know. So, so suddenly something happens, and somebody says, "We need to get to the bottom of this." Okay. So they pull out all the stops. And they hire an investigator, and then we never hear what happened in the end, because then they get busy. Their attention gets drawn to something else, okay? And that's that's usually what it is, you know. So I don't know what the outcome of this was. We had a similar thing with um, is it the Mister Freeze, Arnold Schwarzenegger? There was yeah, there was something there, something about that. I, they had um, they were taking away people's their their mobile phones. Like they, they were hiring a lot of extras to come in on the um, Poison Ivy. Was that the was that the one with George? Batman Queen, and Robin. The, yeah. Sadly, uh, yes. Yeah, I remember. I remember Batman and Robin. I remember my first look at the Mister Freeze costume came on Entertainment Tonight from a behind the scenes photograph someone had taken. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like, they were bastards. Why? They were I searching the that. extras. They were searching all the extras they had hired to keep them from bringing. Um, and I don't think all the phones even had cameras in them yet, you know, but they were they were preventing people from bringing cameras in. And then it became a challenge for everybody to bring cameras onto the sets, you know, and um, and, the, you know, they had a um, I don't mean to be hypercritical of Warner Brothers, but I could tell you, I saw some really silly shit in my day. So they had this big announcement because somebody had stolen. OK, somebody stole animation cells acetate animation cells okay and there was this big investigation you know and then we never heard the outcome of that and the outcome was that one of the employees saw the stuff in the trash dumpster and retrieved it and took it home and all of a sudden he was like stealing stuff from the studio and then they were so goddamn embarrassed by by all the publicity and everything on that that they just let it die somewhere i don't know i don't know who the guy was that that took the stuff you know but it was in a bin in a bin the yeah. studio never valued stuff like that okay they had um when when the uh when christian bale went crazy on the dp <laughs> i knew uh, this was going to seek into this you story. know because well this one really irritates me you know so christian bale um was yelling at um Shane Herbert was that his name? The the DP I think so. on Terminator, on Terminator, yeah. Terminator fifty five. You know, um, because he had crossed his sight line. Okay, so so that happened, and then we read about it because it made the newspapers in New Mexico where they were shooting. You know, and it was like, wow, okay. And then we're all we're all wondering what's going on. What happened to Christian Bale, what, you know, he was such a nice guy. What's he, what's this all about? We're just kind of wondering what's this all about. And then you don't think about it again. Okay. Um, and then the audio of it appears on a radio station. I was shocked. I, I was leaving a premiere. Um, we were having a premiere at the Chinese one night. It was a Monday or Tuesday night. That's usually when the premieres were. We're, we're having a premiere and I'm pulling out of the Hollywood and Highlands um, out of the ramp, you know, from their parking structure. 
and, and I'm suddenly getting a radio signal and, and I'm here and I hear Christian Bale yelling at, you know, and because the guy crossed his sight line and everything. And, and that became this big scandal and everything. And then they, they questioned everybody. Jim O'Donnell came to my office and he's questioning me. And it was clear to me they had a target painted on my back. And that's why I find this so irritating. Um, and then what I heard, what I heard was that they, they zeroed in on someone else. And um, I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to damage anybody's reputation here because nobody really knows except whoever might have leaked it maybe knows. I have an idea how it, how it got out, um, but they wouldn't listen to me. Um, but anyway, they, um, I had heard that they were questioning somebody about it, somebody that they thought might've been involved. And then they, and then the guy said um, that not, not to talk to him, to talk to him through his attorney or something like that, you know? And then they all said, Oh, well, obviously that's the guy. You know, and I thought, and I, didn't, I couldn't say anything, but I was, I was a pubic hair away from saying that myself. They had, it was obvious to me they had painted it, and I was so irritated. They kept calling me. He came to my office. He brought Burbank police detective with him to my office, you know, and then they're on the phone. They called me on the phone, and it was obvious that they were recording me because it was, we already had this conversation. Why are you calling me on the phone? Why would you call me on the phone? Why wouldn't you come to my office if you've already been doing that to me? You know, um, so it was obvious to me they must have been recording my voice, and I don't know what they thought they were going to get from that. You know, but the but the fact is that I had nothing to do with the release of all that stuff. Um, but I'm, you know, I I got so irritated by it. I started very quietly doing my own little investigation of it, and I I think. I have a really plausible candidate for that, you know, but again, I'm not going to mention any names or anything like that or what the position was because um, there, there's no need for me to damage anybody's reputation, but there was never a resolution to that as far as I know, you know, and I even said to them, cause it came, it was released. I heard it on the radio, but it had been released through TMZ and they were, they were saying, well, we're going to go after whoever, you know, we're going to sue them. And I'm, and he can't say anything. And I'm an incredible smartass. You guys both know. Okay, you spend enough time with you know I'm I'm an incredible smartass, and and I just kept biting my tongue and biting my tongue because, like, TMZ was owned by Time Warner, so who the fuck are you going to sue? I mean, seriously, you know, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna go after somebody for taking material from Time Warner and giving it to Time Warner, <laughs> you know? And and I remember even saying to Jim O'Donnell at the time, you know. If um, I know how you can find this out, you know, if TMZ paid for this, you get Time Warner to audit their books. Oh, we can't do that. Well, we can't do that. And it's like, well, why not? Well, we can't. They they um, they don't want to question the the uh, journalistic integrity of TMZ. And, I'm, and of course, I couldn't say anything, but I'm thinking journalistic integrity. These are the guys who stand around the palm trying to get a picture of a Britney Spears snatch. Okay. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Journalistic integrity. <laughs> right. Well, ahead, cut that out if you want. <laughs> no. no, that's staying no. in. No, that's staying in. We, we're not editing stuff. Okay. The final two things on this uh, before we, we seek into, well, we'll, I guess we'll leave the other parts for part two. 
which we will record. Um, the final shot of Catwoman in Batman Returns was added only weeks before the film opened. So this well, is where I wouldn't be surprised. Catwoman is looking up at the bat signal at the end yeah. to prove that she is still alive. Yeah. Well, they had. I I don't know if they were planning to bring her back. Tim, of course, never returned to Batman after that. But everybody loved her as a character. I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer was just so good. Have you, mm. have any of the um, Catwomen since her really done it for you? No. In what way? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not going to lie, Anne Hathaway looked great in the, uh, in the leather. Um, yeah. But no, no. I think she was a wonderful character, this, this damage vulnerability that probably... Yes shone through this kind of fractured and a fully psyche. fleshed but a fully fleshed character as well yes I oh yeah totally believe her she wasn't i love anne hathaway um a lot of people don't and i don't understand why not but i love anne hathaway and i thought she was perfectly suited for the job that she did with the chris nolan when you know when we graduated in the chris nolan world with batman um but for me michelle pfeiffer is Catwoman, not Halle Berry, Oof. and not Zoe, whatever. What's her name? Kravitz. You know, not her. You know, and then Zoe. I read. I read in the press that Zoe claimed that they had approached her about um, doing the doing some sort of character, like this character in a previous incarnation, perhaps the Anne Hathaway, but they weren't ready for a, a person of color. Okay, total fucking bullshit okay and i don't care who hears me say that total fucking bullshit because it was anne hathaway from day one in that you know i never heard of zoe kravitz at the time nobody had well there you go straight straight from alpha babes and yeah i will honestly say that in the entire movie of batman returns she is the character with the full story arc yes out of all of the characters in that movie. You can argue that it is Catwoman's movie. Well, it is. I, I mean, if, if you look at um, even the James Bond movies, you know, James Bond never has an arc, except that the final one we did with Daniel Craig. I mean, there's fine, there was an arc there, but he's always going to be the same guy. You know, yeah. he'll come back a little more battle scarred or a little more paranoid, but... Um, he's always just going to be James Bond. The main character is always the villain. And in the early Ian Fleming books, the, the villain was the name of the book. Dr. No, Goldfinger, mm. yeah. you know, Drax. Well, although it came out as Moonraker, but um, the main character usually is the villain. And, and um, so in, in that regard, she really is the main character of, of this movie. You know, and she's a lot more the the character is much, much more developed than the penguin is. Yeah. You know, or, or Christopher Walken for that matter. Yes. Yeah. He he's you know, he's Christopher Walken doing what Christopher Walken does best, but the character itself is just real estate guy wants yeah. to get a bit more power. That's it. There is right. nothing going on there. But like you say with Catwoman, she's rounded out all the way has a goes through a proper character transformation and then goes through a secondary one towards the end 
There's and they a... wanted her back, which is why that final shot is there. Mm. You know? um, well, the round out on Batman Returns, the very last part of it here. Um, we talking uh, about Pee Wee Herman appearing at the beginning. No, no, I'm not going on the Pee Wee Herman thing. Even <laughs> though apparently that was also suggested to be Burgess Meredith at one point as well. Oh, that would have been good. Apparently. He was, um, but Burgess had done, he was really, really old and he was doing, um, I don't know what year. Yeah, we did Grumpy Old Men and Grumpier Old Men. And um, he was um, slowing down because we we had contacted him, not not me, but Tom Proper, who was my um, predecessor in the position when I became director of post-production. Tom had to contact Burgess about doing his ADR work. And and Bird Burgess was like, but but I I died in that movie. It was like he had somehow hadn't registered that he had to do ADR. So we thought, yeah. okay, we've he's starting to slip. Um, we need to be careful with him. And um, and I don't think he lived for very much longer. I don't remember exactly, but um, so I, I that would have been a horrible burden to put on him at his age. Yeah. I think in this film. But the one story that I did want to cover to end on Batman Returns, Bill, is there any truth to the rumor that Batman Returns first script by Sam Hamm was about the Penguin and Catwoman seeking hidden treasure? I don't know. I never saw the original script. <laughs> it should not surprise me from, from Sam Hamm when you've seen him in the documentaries for um, Batman. <laughs> but Get the Catwoman and the Penguin. I think Steve's going to wet himself there. Um, You know what? Nothing would picture the two of them with like a pirate ship. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be be the Penguin's duck. And they're basically just sailing out to find this hidden treasure. How would Batman play into a hidden treasure plot? Uh, You know what? Who knows? Who knows if that's... You've got to message him and ask him. (laughs) But who, who knows if that... The script ever was given any attention well obviously it wasn't <laughs> yeah. so i think for here for part one of uh, our delve into 1992 this is a good point to sign off on uh we've got to talk about steven seagal wesley snipes and a lot of other stuff in part two and it's worth joining us for so uh join us on part two Yes. For now, though, uh, until we return, we just want to say a very big thank you to our very special guest, Bill Daly, for joining us here on the first installment of our Look Back. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for having me. And he'll be wearing the same clothes on the next one. (laughs) I can change. Yeah. Fuck the continuity. You could never change, Bill. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Uh, For now, though, it is a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me too. Bye.